You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. President uh, Donald Trump's been given uh, one more way to intimidate Beijing, if you like, before leaving office. The U.S. House has passed a law to put Chinese companies under closer scrutiny. They must now follow American auditing standards if they want to be listed on U.S. exchanges. The law is expected to be signed by President Trump, and it certainly could pave the way for a number of Chinese companies to be delisted. Hello and welcome to the U.S.-China Trade War Update with me, Finbar Birmingham, on the Political Economy Desk at the South China Morning Post. We're bang in the middle of the fourth wave of coronavirus pandemic here in Hong Kong. Just as things were opening up, they closed them right back down again. But the show must go on, and this week myself and our political economy editors John Carter and Joe Xin are joining you from our homes dotted around Hong Kong Island to discuss a week that is just getting more and more dramatic. We kind of expected that Donald Trump wouldn't go quietly, but even as he continues to protest Joe Biden's election win at home, he's lobbing a series of exit grenades in China's direction abroad. From more bans on Xinjiang cotton, to Chinese companies being threatened with being kicked off the New York Stock Exchange, to cutting off China's blue chip chip maker from US supplies. Take cover, the barrage is coming in thick and fast. After we talk through the news of the week, we've got a bit of a podcast exclusive for you this week. Those with long memories will remember the arduous and at times fierce negotiations between the US and China over China's accession to the WTO all through the 90s into the early 2000s. It went on for almost 15 years and at the heart of it for much of that was Long Yong Tu, who along with Madame Wu Yi was China's chief trade negotiator. Long Yong Tu was interviewed by our business editor Eugene Tang at the Post's China conference this week and we're delighted to bring you that interview in the second part of the show. One to look forward to. Another topsy-turvy week as we see the last gasps of the Trump administration and the grenades being thrown China's direction on the way out. We've talked about the trade war at length, the tech war, the currency war, and in the past, John Carter has talked about the prospect of financial war. This week, John, we saw US legislators move to install rules that would uh, force Chinese companies listed on US stock exchange to comply with US audit oversight um laws, audit oversight rules, and if not, they can get kicked off. Um, John, is this what you had in mind when you spoke on the podcast a number of months ago about a financial war? Well, it's part of it. Um, and this is, um, it, it goes back to a number of Chinese companies that have been listed in the U.S. who suddenly went bust or, or, or had very serious financial problems. Luck and Coffee being the most recent, uh, they, um, overestimated their sales. They, they faked their sales numbers by um, hundreds of millions of dollars. And of course, that had a profound impact on the price of their stock in, uh, traded in the US. And so there's been a movement for quite some time in this direction, and it's culminated in this, uh, which is to say that um, Chinese companies have to uh, comply with U.S. accounting rules if they want to list in the United States. And the, and the, the uh, SEC in, in, in proposing the rule initially, which has just been passed by Congress, uh, said it was for the protection of American investors. But it's also directed specifically at China 
um, which is yet a part of this financial war, which could include, and this is something the Chinese are very concerned about, is is uh, being restricted from access to the U.S.-dominated international payment system. That would be the nuclear option by the United States, which would uh, really hurt Chinese firms, but it also hurt U.S. firms. It would, mm-hmm. it would be a, a type of major event that would uh, really uh, rock the international eco- economy and potentially international financial markets. Yeah, just to illustrate the scale of um, Chinese companies invested in, in or were listed on U.S. markets, more than 210 Chinese firms with a combined market capitalization of more than $2 trillion were listed on the major exchanges as of October. Those figures from the recent congressional report by the U.S., China Economic and Security Review Commission. Joshin, is this something that Chinese companies are going to be worried about? Is it something they're going to be able to comply with? Uh, well, I think for the Chinese companies uh, listed in the U.S. market, they are really, um, you know, cut in the middle, and they basically have no um, choices. As we can see, you know, some uh, big Chinese companies, including our owner. Alibaba has already uh, have a deal listing in Hong Kong. I think this is a kind of, uh, um, you know. People are preparing for the kind of decoupling between China and the U.S. Of course, no business will hope that there will be conflict between the two biggest markets in the world. But when this is happening, you know, uh, company has to make preparations. And also, although uh, China, China's regulators has been quite uh, positive, saying you know we are willing to work with as uh, uh, SEC, we are willing to uh, uh, to solve this auditing issue. But uh, as everyone can see, you know, this process won't be easy because. Uh, at the end of the day, it is uh, up to China to hand, hand over the uh, law document, law audit documents, law accounting records uh, to the to the, to the U.S. regulators, and this is uh, this is not something that can be done easily. No, not at all. Um, just the usual caveat: uh, Alibaba is the owner of the South China Morning Post. Um, the, the second one we were going to touch on briefly was um, the second grenade, shall we say, is just um, this morning our time, it's Friday here in Hong Kong, and um, the Trump administration added China's top chip maker, SMIC, and its oil giant, CNOC, to a blacklist of alleged Chinese military companies. Um, this is going to escalate tensions further. Um, this list has been floating around for a while um, there's now 35 companies on it. Um, Joshin, how do you how do you read this? And by going for SMIC, is it a, a, once again a sort of case of um, the U.S. authorities going after one of China's crown jewels? Oh well, this is a um, this is potentially very big because, as we all know, China has been trying very hard to be more independent in terms of chip production, so that it can uh, reduce reliance on imported ones. And um, SMIC is by far the best hope for China to do so. Because you know China has launched this uh, state subsidy program, you know, encouraging basically every city to set up its chip plant. But most of them are just trying to uh, take some money from central government rather than really producing reliable and usable uh, uh, chips. As we can, you know, we reported that in the in city yeah. of Wuhan, you know, that's the how the, the ambition of the municipal government quickly collapsed, and the CEO hided from Taiwan. Caught like he told SMP on the record that it's a nightmare. Yes, I remember and I mean, Sydney's Wuhan, story, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, and Wuhan is certainly not the worst. I mean, there are so many uh, chip uh, projects across China. Uh, not many of them will be successful, but SMIC will be successful. It has the money, 
It has a has the best of technology available. It has a best of policies available for it. So this is China's uh, best hope. So it's very interesting to see how SMIC can handle this kind of uh, uh, U.S. sanctions. Can it really, you know, find a way to to continue to grow, or uh, you know, with this uh, new U.S. sanction? Uh, SMIC has to find other ways to uh, uh, to develop the ch- uh, chip products, and this will be very interesting. And if SMIC uh, cannot grow healthily, uh, then China's ambition in the chip will certainly uh, see a big blow. John, this is uh, coming at a very interesting time. Obviously, uh, we're seeing the Trump administration trying to squeeze in as much anti-China legislation as possible. But from China's perspective, it comes at a time when it's trying to be self-sufficient. Um, we saw the five-year plan lay this and. Um, the blueprints for this um, dual circulation policy has been widely cited through which China will try and nurture its domestic champions and will become less reliant on uh, what has been called a hostile international environment. So the listing of a, of a company like SMIC, the, the leading chip maker in China, what size of a spanner does it throw in the works? Well, potentially a big spanner. Um, obviously, uh, I mean, first of all, it, it it confirms uh, the Chinese view of what the uh, external environment is going to be like, at least in the short run under the remaining Trump administration. Uh, but it also limits China's ability to import uh, technology and work with Western companies or U.S. companies in order to improve their uh, independence, to uh, uh, upgrade their systems so that they can be independent. And so it. Uh, it, it, at the very least, it delays their progress. Uh, it's not clear that it will stop it. And I would note that a, a very big question is you know, how the Biden administration is going to approach this. This blacklist prevents U.S. firms from doing business with these Chinese companies without a special license. Now, the Biden administration could turn around and say, OK, we'll give you special licenses to go return to business with these firms. We don't know that that's going to happen. Um, uh, President-elect Biden said in an interview with The New York Times this week that he had no immediate plans to uh, reduce trade tariffs or or to uh, talk about renegotiating the phase one trade deal. In other words, mm-hmm. Uh, steady as we go on on trade with China. But that does not mean in the longer run, in an effort to improve relations, that the U.S. might ease up on the sanctions that Trump is busily putting in place before he leaves office. Yeah, and in the second half of the show, we'll have former trade China's former trade chief, um, trade, top negotiator, Long Young too. Echo your sentiments there, John. But um, just to drill down on the Biden interview, um, he didn't say too much about China, but what he did say sort of confirmed what people had expected. As you say, he will keep the tariffs in place. He will conduct a full review of that. He will build uh, this coalition of allies, and he said the best best way of um, the best China strategy is one which is done alongside um, allies. Um, Joe Shin. Uh, was the Biden interview, I'm guessing it wasn't really picked up much in uh, domestic media in China, but has there been any chatter about this and, and what he said just in general? Oh, well, uh, I think the, uh, the Biden's uh, interview with the New York Times uh, is, you know, surprisingly, uh, Beijing is very quiet about this. 
you know, basically there was no, not many comments, not many responses. And I guess one reason for Beijing is that it's kind of expected. No one in Beijing is, is hoping, was hoping that Biden, the first thing he would do was to lift the tariffs. And also secondly, um, it is uh, the tariffs, although it's, uh, it's kind of inconvenience for China, but China has get, get used to it. You know, it didn't certainly didn't hurt China's export much. If you look at the data, they are still like twenty five percent tariffs on uh, two hundred fifty billion, and another seven point five percent on about uh, one hundred billion. But this this uh, this tariff isn't really a drag on Chinese exports or Chinese economy. It's just uh, another like a small cost effect. So it's not a big deal. So for the Chinese side, uh, they, I think Beijing is more looking forward to what like overall strategy is instead of hoping uh biden will do something on very specific issues before uh before he assumes uh, uh the position in the white house yeah um the final grenade i wanted to discuss this morning was the um the withhold release order issued issued by the u.s um department of homeland security um on wednesday this is the u.s government said that it would start blocking the import of all cotton products made by the Xinjiang Production and Corp Construction Corps, XPCC, citing concerns that this sprawling quasi-military entity in the northwest of China is responsible for wide, widespread use of forced labor. This is something that's been in the works for a while. We had expected it a couple of months ago, and it's also happening at a point when we may see another, um, another Xinjiang bill, the forced labor bill, pass before the, the lame duck is out. A whole host of um, of Xinjiang legislation is is hitting in the dying days of the Trump administration. I just wanted to 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 draw attention to a couple of things on this. I mean, it's more than just XPCC. This is a massive organization that's responsible for about the th a third of China's cotton production, and China is responsible for about a third of the world's cotton production. So it's not a small matter to get this out of your supply chain and. The, the people I've been speaking to have been really struggling with getting their heads around how they're going to do this. These are industry people, companies, lawyers, and they've also been wondering how it's going to be enforced. Um, the second point is that, that I wanted to draw attention to is a statement by the DHS, the Department of Home, Homeland Security's Acting Deputy Secretary, Ken Cuccinelli. The tone of this really struck me. He said, um, DHS is taking the lead to enforce our laws by to make sure human rights abusers, including US businesses, are not allowed to manipulate our system in order to profit from slave labor. Made in China is not just a country of origin, it is a warning label. John, fierce words from Cuccinelli there and really illustrative in, in that one final sentence of um, how the tone of the conversation has really dipped uh, in the past months. It has. And um uh, the issue of human rights, and this is uh, the allegations of uh, um, forced labor, of, of incarceration for weak, the Uyghur minority in Xinjiang province is likely to be a bigger issue under the Biden administration than it was under the Trump administration. Uh, the, the Trump administration came to the game uh, relatively late, but is um, trying to catch up um, as part of its overall uh, China containment strategy, uh, but um, I would expect it. Uh, first of all, the statement that you mentioned uh, is is from one of the uh, obvious hawks in the Trump administration. But it is not an uncommon view in Washington. There is a, a strong uh, bipartisan consensus that uh, that 
the United States needs to confront China on these type of issues. And as you say, uh, there's very good chance that uh, this uh, forced labor uh, bill will pass Congress before uh, the Congress adjourns for the year. So uh, that speaks to the whole issue of um, human rights uh, and whether, uh, and I think that the Biden administration will focus more on that than the Trump administration has. Yes. And uh, Zhu Xin, you think this is something that the Chinese policymakers would be would be worried about, um, going after XPCC, sanctioning Xinjiang officials and the continued assault on this, which will probably continue into the Biden administration? Well, I think for China, the uh, the big picture is that China-U.S. relations will not see any significant improvement and Biden. So the issue is to uh, keep it from worsening. One of the, you know, the most, uh, um, one of the best known uh, US-China experts in Beijing said, you know, Beijing maybe should recognize the fact that China-US is uh, in a kind of strategic competition relationship rather than wishfully thinking that, you know, US-China can continue to be strategic partners or whatever. So this is a, this is a, a big uh, uh, big change in the mindset in Beijing because only a few years ago, the um, default mode in China was uh, like, oh, US-China will always be, um, even if it's bad, it will not be, there will be a certain limit. But for now, Beijing sees no limit. So, so the thinking has changed, you know, China is trying to set some bottom lines. Whatever, whatever the U.S. do, every every is kind of whether it's sanctions of Xinjiang or whether it's uh, uh, it's getting more Chinese companies on the blacklist or uh, starting a financial war will be seen as evidence to support the strategic judgment. Well, that's great for this week, guys. Just quickly before we finish up, what's in the pipeline for the week ahead? Well, on Monday we get um, Chinese trade data for November, and it'd be important to look and see if the strong export trend continues. Uh, it's a remind exports in recent months have been very strong uh, in large part due to exports of personal protection equipment used to combat the coronavirus and computers and uh, video equipment for people working and playing at home. And so it, it, exports have been stronger than expected. Um, and we'll see if that trend continues. Jushin, anything you've got your eye on over the coming seven days? Oh, yes. Uh, one thing that is very interesting is that uh, today there's a Wall Street Journal report that uh, U.S. Department of Justice is talking with Meng Wanzhou to, you know, for, 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 for kind of negotiations so that Meng Wanzhou can be released. Uh, this will be uh, something interesting to watch because that's the case that has been going on the last two years. Uh, very, uh, uh, you know, very interesting. Okay. We will look forward to hearing more on that next week. Until then, thanks a million guys for joining us. Just before the second half of the show, our friends on the SEMP's video team have just released a very important documentary. Have a listen to this. In 2019, Hong Kong witnessed social and political upheaval that rocked the city to its foundations, setting off shockwaves that continue to reverberate today. The people knew that this is so dangerous. Anybody could be just brought back to China for trial. The definitive documentary on the Hong Kong protests offers an in-depth look at the dramatic story of a city at a crossroads. It draws from extensive video footage, exclusive interviews with those caught up in the conflict, and unparalleled access to ground zero reporting by our award-winning journalists. 
China's Rebel City is a companion presentation to the book Rebel City, Hong Kong's Year of Water and Fire that was published by The Post in June. You can watch China's Rebel City online, on demand, on YouTube, Facebook, or the South China Morning Post homepage, scmp.com. You're not going to hear a chunk of Eugene Tang's interview with Long Yong too. As I said at the top of the show, Long was China's chief trade negotiator during the long talks on joining WTO. He's known in China as a reformer. He wants to see China's economy open up and he wants China to engage in free trade. He's also considered an eminence Greece. That is, he is a hyper well-connected individual among the current apparatus in Beijing. So it's great to get his thoughts on the show. President Xi has attached great importance to China's import-export. That means that we are willing and able to import more from the world, especially in the difficult time for many of the countries. And uh, another way is that um, maybe China could invest more in some other countries so as to create some capacity and also to respell and restore, uh, restore some of the uh, disrupted uh, production lines and supply chain. And I think that could be also a very important way for China to uh, do something for the rest of the world. Of course, we are hopeful that uh, we can um, be very strong in the cooperation in anti-pandemic uh, uh, disease and uh, provide the vaccine and many other things. Let's talk briefly about global trade and trade uh, blocks. Now, China obviously uh, recently signed the RCEP uh, trade agreement with uh, several countries, including the uh, Association of Southeast Asian Nations, uh, South Korea and Japan. Now, Chinese officials have consistently said that they would also be open to joining the CPTPP, which is the Pacific Trade um, Partnership. Uh, which is essentially RCEP plus the United States, Canada, Peru, Chile, and Mexico. Now, most trade experts think that China would be unlikely to be able to meet the terms of the deal on issues like SOE reforms. Do you view this as mainly rhetoric from China, or is this a serious interest to expand membership into the CPTPP? Yes, let's go, uh, let's go back to the TPP uh, originally being negotiated at that time. And I, I can tell you, uh, I was one of the um, people very strongly supporting China to be open to TPP because uh, I see a lot of uh, advantages of being a uh, constructing parties of TPP because world trade is developing and there are more, there are more and more new issues and technology and uh, for instance, uh, um, many of the other things. Uh, so China should, do, should be update uh, its uh, trade practice to the more advanced and new uh, high quality, uh, high standard uh, trade rules. And that's good for China. So even during that time, I, I still remember uh, Pres uh, Premier Li Keqiang in a board forum for Asia saying that uh, China uh, take an open attitude to TPP and we sincerely hope it could be successful. So uh, even at that time before TPP 
uh, was uh, become a, a agreement, China still already took a very open attitude. And this time, when the Chinese leaders say we shall seriously consent to participate, participate in CPTPP, I think it's a serious um, uh, initiative uh, because we believe uh, uh, CPTPP is high quality, high standard trade agreement. It would be good for, uh, for the whole world uh, if the Asian Pacific countries can accept the TPP as a whole. And on that basis, it will promote the trade negotiations in the framework of WTO and many other trade, uh, other regional framework. So I hope that uh, uh, CPTPP um, uh, could be a very important instrument to promote the trade liberalization and the trade uh, um, facilitation. Um, um, as you as you as people say that it cannot, China cannot meet the terms of CPTPP, I, I think this is uh, uh, this is a groundless. And uh, you see the CPTPP membership is very diversified, in including some more developed countries uh, uh, than China, like Japan, Korea, or Singapore. But you also have Vietnam, Singapore, uh, Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, and there are other countries in it. If Vietnam and Singapore, and they also have very uh, strong state uh, industrial, if they can meet the terms of uh, CPTPP, why not China? And also, China is engaged very, very strongly in the state-owned enterprise reform. And uh, if we, by participating CPTPP, we can get some new ideas, even we can get some pressure from the participation with CPP to accelerate China's state-owned enterprise reform. That's a good thing for China, just like we did in, uh, uh, in the accession to WTO. It exerted um, uh, a lot of pressure uh, in China's many areas to accelerate the economic reform. That is why uh, the accession of WTO has played such an important role in China. Because it did provide some healthy international pressure for China to accelerate economic reform. We, we think that's a good thing because uh, um, just like when one student, if you want to make progress, you, get, you should get some competition and the pressure from your, your, your fellow, uh, uh, fellow classmate. Uh, I think that's a good thing. Let's quick let's uh, return to talking about U.S.-China uh, trade relations for a while. Now, the position of the U.S. trade representative, uh, whom you were familiar with during your work on negotiations to join the WTO, um, took an outsized significance under Robert Lighthizer in the Trump administration. Now, there is very much uh, speculation as to whether this replacement candidate would have any in-depth experience of dealing with China. Is this something that China's policy makers are watching very closely? Well, I do not think so, because the trade policy of one country, including the United States, is decided by its highest leadership, the president, and also influenced by many interested groups, by business community. 
And uh, USTL, of course, plays some important role, but it's not decisive. And during my uh, uh, terms as the chief negotiator, I have survived three or four or five USTR, and it doesn't make too much difference to me whether they have changed the USTR because they, they basically they are consistent in their uh, trade interest. And of course, there's some difference in style, you know, some difference in, uh, in, in, in the focus, the emphasis, but uh, I, I do not think the change for USTR will play a fundamental uh, part in changing the whole trade policy uh, because both countries, United States, all uh, work for its own country's interest. So, which begs the question, in the previous four years, in the past four years, the U.S.-China relations, uh, trade relations have gone through the, to the deep end. So, to what extent do you think that deterioration was a reflection of Lighthizer's uh, personal biases? Or to what extent did it reflect the broader consensus of U.S. policymakers against China? I think um, I do not... The inside story of uh, how the U.S. administration uh, was functioning all this time, but uh, I do not think uh, uh, it is fair to um, single out some person uh, to be responsible for certain trade policy, because uh, it represents a kind of uh, leadership. But uh, the broader consensus should be based on the much broader interest of uh, of uh, U.S. side. Uh, so uh, uh, I still think that um, um, we do not, it is not necessary to single out some persons to, to be responsible for, for certain trade policy. Right. Uh, of course, uh, two names have now been uh, touted as possible replacements for Mr. Lighthizer. Um, Catherine Tai, uh, a lawyer on the House and Way, um, um, Means Committee, uh, and also Jimmy Gomez, a representative from California. Uh, Catherine Tai, of course, uh, comes with a lot of legal background and trade background, uh, speaks Mandarin. Um, we'll see how that goes. Now, you also mentioned about earlier on that uh, dialogue is uh, essential and crucial to maintaining and sustaining the relationship of two economic powers. There have been a lot of calls to resume the biannual strategic and economic dialogues that were part of the um, President Hu's um, time and also uh, continued on during the Bush and Obama administrations. Now, do you think these dialogues were ultimately useful in addressing some of the more fundamental issues and questions in U.S.-China relations in the past? Yes, certainly. I think uh, this mechanism uh, uh, could be very important, especially at the current time, because we have not been having a uh, serious dialogue for a long time, and it's high time for us to, to resume this kind of mechanism, uh, which will um, get involved not only high-level uh, trade policy makers of, of both sides, but also uh, some working-level uh, people into, in this kind of dialogue. I do believe that uh, if uh, uh, this kind of dialogue, including some other mechanism, could be resumed, uh, there would be already half half done to repair the U.S. trade relationship. Uh, so I strongly support the resumption of this kind of mechanism. 
Of course, the uh, dual circulation economic policy that we are currently talking about is, uh, I remember more than 10 years ago, um, this was one of the recommendations made for China to try and rebalance its uh, uh, current account uh, gap and trade gap with uh, the United States. So 10 years later, we are seeing this being uh, executed as a policy priority in China. So looks like uh, it does take time, but things do happen. Now, if you were to resume these dialogues, what would be, say, the top three or top five uh, topics that you offer to put on the table for discussion? Uh, I, I, I could think of this, uh, uh, some of the things that I think it would be very important. For instance, uh, trade deficit. Uh, I still uh, believe that um, there should be a no major problem if two countries uh, have some trade deficit or trade surplus. It's important how to address them. And, uh, but I think the current U.S.-China uh, trade deficit uh, is too big. And we have to make efforts to narrow it down and, uh, and make it to a, a healthy, uh, uh, reasonable, and uh, acceptable level. Uh, so I hope that we can have a serious talk with our U.S. colleagues to how to narrow the gap uh, through the, a kind of a dynamic process, uh, through the market uh, mechanism. And um, we, we do not believe that um, too much administrative interference to resolve the trade gap is the right choice. We have to depend more on the market because the market knows how, how to address these kind of issues. You know? And uh, that's important. That's a very important issues. And secondly, I think we have to address uh, um, a serious issue about uh, uh, protection of uh, IPR, because uh, the protection of IPR on both sides are very major concern. China is trying to create an innovative country. So we are also attaching importance to protection of IPR. So the kind of um, negotiation, the kind of agreements that we can take and reach with the United States can be a healthy uh, pressure for us to strengthen our, tighten our hands on the protection of IPR. Because the meaning of uh, 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 entrepreneurs and the scientists and, and, and technical people also take, tell, tell me that it's important to tighten the protection of IPR within China. Uh, we have to do a lot of things on this. So the international trade could provide some good opportunity for us to resolve some of the issues. Now, this is my experience during my term as the chief negotiators. And uh, U.S. also have a lot of concern on that. Even European Union, Japan, they all have a lot of concern. It's a good thing that... The protection of IPR, uh, I think it should be a, a world consensus. And uh, that is the only way to accelerate uh, technological development. And uh, this is good not only for China, US, but for the whole world. I, think, uh, I hope this could be a very important subject. Uh, another subject, of course, uh, is how we can uh, practice 
the principle of undiscrimination uh, towards the enterprises of different countries. I, it's, uh, it's horrible to see um, a country use its whole country's administrative power to hit to attack one single Chinese enterprise. It is, it is unbelievable. It creates a very bad precedent in the world trade relationship. I hope this is, this is something that could be resolved. And otherwise, there, there will be uh, no certainty, no sense of uh, certainty for the enterprises. Uh, that's, that's no good for the uh, trade development or the technological development. So I can, I hope this could be also an issue that we can still be addressed. Right. You mentioned the addressing the trade gap, uh, protection of intellectual property rights, and finally, uh, if I can re uh, paraphrase you, ensuring a level playing field, uh, non-discrimination against uh, proprietors and uh, private enterprises. How about yeah. um, the corona coronavirus pandemic that we are currently facing, the biggest uh, public health crisis uh, the world has ever seen in uh, decades? Is there room for uh, collaboration between China and the United States? In, in pandemic, you mean? Yes. You mean the anti-pandemic? Yes. I think, of course, that there's a lot of rooms for that because China is... Um, uh, um, Many Chinese are a little bit worried about to see that the, um, the pandemic is still not being controlled in the United States, being a very big country with a huge population. So we seriously hope that uh, the pandemic in the United States could be controlled as, as soon as possible. And uh, uh, I hope that we could also uh, exchange some of the, if, if we can have a joint committee, to, to exchange how China has controlled the pandemic in a reasonably uh, short time and what kind of measures could be taken. And uh, I think that could be useful for them. Of course, we're not teaching them. Uh, we just tell them what happened uh, in, in China. And, uh, uh, and also, uh, maybe we can Join a group to, to study the, the 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 origin of this pandemic because that caused a lot of concerns on the side of the U.S. people, and we have to give a true story to them and to to clarify some misunderstanding about these issues. And uh, I think that also can um, um, improve the atmosphere of China-U.S. relationship because some, uh, some ordinary Americans uh, get, a of, uh, get a lot of not true story uh, from, um, from certain quarters. So it's a good thing for a joint group of uh, 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 two countries plus, I think, reason, I think plus WHO and some other international organization together to find the, the, the origin of the of the pandemic and to give a, uh, give a true story, not only to Americans, but also to the whole the people of the world. And that's good. 
for, for, for improved atmosphere. Thanks for listening to this week's show. I'm Finbar Birmingham on the SCMP's Political Economy Desk. Keep up to date with all things US, China, trade, all details on the Chinese economy at scmp.com. You can follow us on Twitter at SCMP Economy. I am at F Birmingham. Until next week, stay safe, wash your hands, wear your mask, keep your distance. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society.